The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Tonight for the Culture Club from Serfia in Aikino to Sloan in Bad Hell via Mamma Mia and other major roles. We're joined by Ireland's leading singing star in the West End who's appearing in Bat Out of Hell, the musical at the Borgosh Energy Theatre from tonight. Sharon Sexton, thank you very much for joining us on the Culture Club. Thank you very much for having me. I keynote, that was a while back, wasn't it? Yeah, you just brought me right back there. I don't know when. I thought we, 2005, 2006, Well, it was certainly after 2002 and yes, after Saipan anyway. It was. And But tell us about Bat Out of Hell, the musical, because... I'm sure there's so many listeners are familiar with that. I would call it classic album from the 1970s. My generation grew up with it. You're way too young to have grown up with it. How did you get into Bat Out of Hell? Oh, well, flattery will get you everywhere. Um, but no, I'm, I I also grew up listening to Bat Out of Hell. I think it's one of those iconic songs and iconic albums that like just has reached across generations. It's amazing. It, it's 40 years old, 42 years old, I think now. And um, yeah, it was ironically always envisioned to be a stage show. So when Jim wrote the music initially, it was always supposed to be a musical, but nobody would make it. So when nobody would make it and himself and Meatloaf were knocking on doors trying to get this mega show with these opera style kind of 11 minute long songs made, they said, why don't we put it on an album? And that album subsequently became Bad Out of Hell, the classic album that we all know and love. I think it's even older. I remember it from 1978 because yeah. I would have been my first year in secondary school. Yeah, you're probably right. I know it was a, it turned 40 a couple of years ago. So yeah, I kind of wipe out the pandemic. I'm like, those we two years that. never really happened. But yeah. Okay. So tell us about the musical. Now that it has been repurposed back mm-hmm. into a musical, what's the story? What's your part? So I play the role of Sloane, which is the mother of our lovely leading lady, Martha Kirby, who plays the role of Raven. And I suppose Bat was always a little bit off the wall. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that Jim does, even if you look at the Meatloaf songs and the the epic gothic kind of videos, they're very dark and edgy. And we were lucky to kind of originate these roles in 2017. Um, And the whole story centred around a group of kids who are called The Lost, who get frozen at the age of 18. So you've got a lot of kind of Peter Pan themes running through there as well. And of course, the leader of the Lost Strat falls in love with Raven. And I'm Raven's mom and Falco is Raven's father, who are the rulers of what's left of this broken world after some kind of apocalypse kind of disaster that's happened. Now, back in 2017, 2018, when that came out, it was all a bit out there. But actually the themes of somebody being isolated and being locked up and in their room and trying to be protected from the madness that's going on in the world is something I think that is resonating and quite true with a lot of audiences now. Poor Raven, we're trying to protect her, but at the same time, she wants to get out and she wants to rebel and she wants to kind of find her own path. So I'm lucky that my character has a lovely journey through the piece because she's kind of stuck on the fence. She doesn't know whether to support the husband or to support Raven in her quest for freedom. I'm just trying to think of what songs are likely to feature. Clearly the title song, Bad Out of Hell, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, yes. Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Yeah. 
What else? So we also have Dead Ringer for Love. Of and of course, the epic number one, which was actually, is 29 years old today. I read earlier on Anything for Love. But I won't so, do that. Yeah, we have that as well. We have all of the hits and all revved up um, and all coming back to me now, which is something I think a lot of people, they hear about out of hell and they go, oh, the Meatloaf musical. But unfortunately, Meatloaf doesn't feature and it's very it features you know the hits of Bonnie Tyler and Celine Dion and all of these these songs when I was in the rehearsal room where I went Jim wrote that Jim Steinman wrote those as well yeah okay. yeah so like the catalogue is is huge it's the kind of musical I think you'll go to and you'll be surprised yourself how every song you'll go oh yeah Oh, I know that one. Oh, that's a classic. Oh, that's a hit. Yeah. I also mentioned, apart from Aikino, you were in the likes of Mamma Mia and many other big West End musicals like Jesus Christ Superstar. How did you get into that? And how long are you out of Ireland doing that? Well, I started in DIT in the Conservatory of Music and Drama in Rathmines. And back when I was studying, there was no musical theatre course in Ireland. So I kind of... I studied drama for three years and I twisted my parents' arm to let me do that because you could teach. So I was allowed to go and kind of and study for a, something that there was no real career in in Ireland, or if there is, it's very small. But it's not something that can kind of sustain. Did your parents you. think you work it out of the system and then you'd become a teacher? Is it? Yeah, exactly. But I think they always knew. I mean, I've been singing and dancing since I was four, five. So it was always something that I I just knew I wanted to do. But when I came out of college, there wasn't an awful lot of work here. But there was so many of me. There was so many twenty somethings this size, this height this hair colour or who all wanted to be an actor so I kind of had to wait until the rest of them kind of fell off and decided Became to go teachers. Yeah, exactly and decided to get real jobs um, but yeah, I, I did any musicals that were going in Ireland I was lucky to do Aikino and play Sophia which was so much fun and with the same team then as well um, Anglo the musical when that was in the board oh, Paul Harris musical okay. yeah and I did the Gaiety Panto and I worked at the Festival Productions in the National Concert Hall but all of these things were seasonal so it would be every few months and um, when I decided to kind of wanted so desperately to make the leap to London but I was so afraid because um it's such a scary, it's such a scary leap to make, you know, and it's such a big city. Um, I was lucky enough that I managed to get a role in The Commitments, the original Roddy Doyle musical, which played in the palace for a couple of years in the West End. And I kind of promised myself that I would put some money aside every year and I would fly over and back for lessons and fly over and back for castings, but that I wouldn't make the move unless I had a job to go to. And everything just kind of fell into place from there. How long were you with The Commitments for? I was with the commitments for a year and a half and then I got the opportunity to renew to stay on for another year and that was such a learning curve for me that year. It was incredible just being on that stage and doing it as a full-time job with these amazing people around me and what was also um, a real eye-opener was the amount of shows that opened the same time as us and closed within that time. So you, you have the big hits that have been running in the West End for years. You've got your Phantom and your Les Mis, but stuff is tried there every year and collapses. So I was so grateful to have such a long run in the commitments with basically, you know, most of the cast were Irish as well. So it was a massive experience for all of us. But when the time came to renew, I was like, OK, I'm in London. I'm here now. If I don't jump ship and just see what happens you know, I'll be somebody that did the commitments and then moved home again. So yeah. I have to be here. So that was a very scary time of I wasn't sure if I'd done the right thing or not. But I took a leap of faith again. And um, 
yeah, I, I've worked ever since. You got Mamma Mia as well for a while, did you? I did. And I got to do, after the commitments, I got to do the Billy Elliot, which is just such an amazing show. And uh, yeah, that made me feel like I had officially made it. I had a second West End tick. And yeah. We'll get to favourite show in the Culture Club in just a little while, but let's talk a little bit about your musical influences mm. that got you into this. We ask for a first album, but for a first single, but you've gone for an album. Yes. Okay, tell us why. Never bought singles? No, never bought You're singles. You're too young, is it? <laughs> I wish. No, I think I always was just like, you'd see three or four songs in a single, I'd be like, I oh, save up that little bit more, now get I'll the get album. the album. And I like, I always think as well, uh, because so often I've dreamed about, you know, when I make my album and I've made a couple of albums, which is lovely. Well, a lot of them have been cover songs, but we have an original album in the work at the moment. And it's like so important, the story through an album of how the artist wants you to hear it and stuff. I just think that's such a major part of it. So what did you pick for as your first purchase? The Joshua Tree. Yes, the Joshua Tree. And that was also because we had it on vinyl. So I had listened to it so many times on the record player that we had in the living room. So that was my first album CD. Let's have With or Without You. See the stone set in your eyes See the thorn twist in your side I'll wait for you Light of hand and twist of fate On a bed of nails she makes me wait And I wait without you With or without you With or without you You too, with or without you, from what many people think still possibly their best album, mm-hmm. The Joshua Tree, one of the earliest ones. So, what is your favourite album? What will you nominate for us? Fleetwood Mac, Tango in the Night. And I know when people hear Fleetwood Mac, they will often go, oh, Rumours. And it is one of the best albums out there. But Tango in the Night for me, just the colours and the tones in that album, it just means something so special. I don't know what it is. I just would put it on in the kitchen the whole time and just blast along with it vocally. (laughs) The track that we have is Everywhere. Fleetwood Mac everywhere from Tango the Night. Your, your favourite band as well. And from I know younger generations seem to have really gotten into Fleetwood Mac as well in recent years. Yeah, it's funny. They've had a new lease of life. But, you know, it's also ironic. I think there's something about chemistry with people who sing and play together when it's right and it's something you just can't bottle. And obviously Fleetwood Mac existed long before Buckingham and um, Nick's joined them. And that 
for me, the, the, the lineup I think that everybody has fallen in love with is around that time of when they had their biggest hits, Tango in the Night and Rumours and all of that stuff. And the electricity between them when you hear the vocals and the music, it's just amazing. Although there was all sorts of stuff going in the background. They weren't necessarily always getting on well together either. But I think when that they adds to it. When they performed, they just brought it all together. Yeah, but that's what I mean about that chemistry and that energy. They went through hell, obviously, as a band together. But, I mean, it gave them some incredible hits. So is Fleetwood Mac the band you would turn to most to listen to? Yeah, definitely. Whether it's to pick me up or whether it's to just kind of, I don't know, wallow in another mood or something. There's always something in their repertoire I love. Tell us about your favourite artist though, individual. John Paul White. Yes. So myself and Rob Fowler, my partner, um, on and off stage, we created a back kind of story for our characters that are in Bath the Musical, Falco and Sloan. Um, and... We had to, when we originate the role, try and make this kind of relationship between this couple very, very real. And we then decided that we would record an album of cover songs just to kind of mark their journey as a couple and give people an insight into it. And we went looking for songs and it was actually Rob that introduced me to a band called The Civil Wars and their music. And again, it's about chemistry. They only had a very short lifespan together. But John Paul White was one half of that band. And between them, the lyrics and the the vocals and just the, the his guitar playing is so unique. Um, yeah, I have followed his career then since then and seen him live a few times. And they're just, he's just got a way, I think, of taking just such simple feelings and putting them in these gorgeous songs that you almost feel like you've heard the songs before, but yet they're so unique. He's an incredible artist. The track we have is an excerpt from Barton Hallow, the title track of the 2011 Civil Wars album. I've never heard that before, but that reminds me of like, like Robert Plant and Alison Krauss might do together or something, or yeah. even, you know, it, it could also be the title music for some sort of TV mov- movie as well. Or it's, like, it's really got that feel to it. Yeah, it does. There's a lot of emotion in his songs. And I feel like I've, you know, even sometimes you hear him try and sing them as solos, but there's something about the combination of their voices. And yeah, it evokes something really special. Okay, best gig. I'm sure you've been at loads. What are you going for as your favourite? Bon Jovi. Yeah, I've, I think it was because it was one of my first gigs as so well. So where was this and when? So this was in the RDS, I believe, actually. It was the RDS Arena and it was, um, gosh, I must have been about 16. So it was back in the 90s. Um, 
And it was one of those moments. I also, because back in the day, like you would save up for a concert ticket, you know. So it was also I had been working my part time job and I'd managed to get my own ticket. And it was a big deal, a big day out. They'd organised a minibus from Nace and there was, you know, 20 of us going up in our our American ripped jeans and our T-shirts and all that. So it was a massive day out. But I remember just being blown away by um, one specific moment, which is when he said, um, lay your hands on me, which is that amazing Bon Jovi song. They had these probably not so high tech now, but back in the day, these massive blow up kind of hands that came up on either side of the stage. And um, he, he said, you know, God, are you listening? And there was this massive thunder and lightning clap. <laughs> and it just started lashing rain. And I remember just being 16, standing, being drenched in a vest top in the middle of this uh, madness going, this is the best moment of my life. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. Let's hear a little bit of Bon Jovi, not from that performance, but from Wembley Stadium in 1995, Living on a Prayer. Bon Jovi living on a prayer. So, I, although you spent so much time in plays and in musicals and shows, do you watch many? Do you have one standout one you'd recall for us? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I probably don't get to the theatre as much as I would like. And that's because I'm working. So it's kind of, you know, a blessing and a curse. Yeah. But um, I think my aha moment for me was when it was the point and I went to see Phantom of the Opera. That was where I was like, oh my goodness, people get to do this for a living. So for me, definitely that was a musical moment where I was dead cert. This is now what I'm going to try and do. But um, being in London, I think the first year that I was there, I managed to get to the National to see um, August Osage County by Tracy Letts, which was just mind blowing. It was a three act play just all about a family and just the set and the quality acting and everything just again blew me away it was uh, it was incredible and I also see on the list you have Sweeney Todd as well yeah that's kind of on my bucket list of roles that I want to play I just think Sondheim the way he writes as well there's something so just unpredictable Okay, I need to take a break. Uh, Sharon Sexton, star of Bat Out of Hell, the musical, which starts in the Board Gosh Energy Theatre this evening, running until Saturday the 10th of September, is our guest on the Culture Club. And we have loads more with her after we've had the traffic from Neve. 
Welcome back. Sharon Sexton is with us for the Culture Club, star of Bat Out of Hell, the musical, which is on in the Borgosh Energy Theatre from this evening. But we'll get away from music and shows for a little while in your Culture Club choices. And uh, let's talk about favourite movie. What's a movie that you would still pick out? You've got two of them, I believe, for us. I do. Um, I think... Like, it's a really cheesy one, but I just love the Three Men and a Little Lady, Three Men and a Little Baby series, those movies. I think it's something about the music from the 80s and the 90s. It's just that it's one of those movies I can put on and I can just quote every single line along with it. I love it. It's even just, you know, put it on in the background just to, yeah, cheer you up, definitely. But um, Up There is one of my favourite movies of all time. Well, actually, just before we get to that, we actually have a clip from... (gasps) Uh, the sequence that you mentioned, Three Men and a Little Lady, I think is the one yeah. we have. Tom Selleck, Steve Guttenberg oh, and Ten Dancing perform a bedtime rap to Mary, <laughs> who they've raised since infancy. Kick it! Introduce it, Matt. Peter and Jack, we're your rabbits, we're your dad's doing the Mary rap. You're just a little lady and you need your sleep. Don't want to hear no job talking about something to eat. Break down. Like that. Here we go. We will party down lady till and dance until dawn. See your food spitting tongue train and change our song. Now we're situated back to state his father's and waiting. Who'd rather hang with you than the one he's been dating? Say, Mary, did you wash your face? Yo! Say, Mary, did you brush your teeth? Yo! Now Mike be nimble! Peter be quick! Jack bust a rhyme and make it slip! And little lady Mary, we say please just close your eyes and cop some Z's. Just close your eyes and cop some Z's. Wicked, 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 wicked. Just close your eyes and cop some Z's. Just close your eyes and cop some Z's. I need a drink. <laughs> I can only say they must have got paid a fortune for doing the sequels to that. Oh, definitely. It's brilliant. I can see it in my head when you're even listening to it. It's fabulous. Okay, now you will get to your favourite movie, which has been made and remade a number of times. And you've gone, I think, for the original of A Star Is Born. Yes, with Judy Garland. And it's... It's so, it's such, first of all, it's a really long movie. It's such a great movie for like a rainy Sunday where you can stop and take breaks and go and get something to eat and then come back and enjoy it again. It's like, also, it was um, edited quite heavily. So you can actually find the original, original version out there, which has so much extra footage and stuff in it now. Um, But yeah, she's just fabulous in it. And her rendition of, she's a song and it called The Man That Got Away. And I remember just looking at that, just going, that's how you do it. It's such a class act and just every emotion. She was so, just wore everything on her sleeve. Um, And at the very end of the movie, she just has just the most simplest line of dialogue where she comes out and she introduces herself with her husband's name rather than her star name that she's always she's always been known as. You watch her whole journey, her whole career throughout the movie. Um, and when she says that, I just, ladies and gentlemen, hello, I'm Mrs. Norman Main. I, I just lose it. I just, it's one of those just perfect circle movies. I'm not sure that's the clip we have because in, in the one that we do have, she speaks about her husband who was played by James Mason about his alcoholism in, in one of the movie's most powerful scenes. Mm. How's Norman? Is he all right? Yes, he's fine. Want some coffee? Thanks. Here. Sit down, Oliver. Tell me, is he... Uh... He's 
in a sanitarium. He really wants us to stop drinking, Oliver. He's trying very hard. I know he is. But what... What is it? What is it that makes him want to destroy himself? You... You've known him longer than anyone else. Tell me what it is. Please, I don't care. Just tell me. Don't you think I've tried through the years to know why? To help him? I don't know, Esther. I don't know what the answer is. Well, I've got to find the answer. You don't know what it's like to watch somebody you love just crumble away bit by bit, day by day, in front of your eyes, and stand there helpless. Love isn't enough. I, I thought it was. I thought I was the answer for Norman. Love isn't enough for him. Star is Born, the original. What do you make of the remakes? Most recently, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Before that, there was one in the 70s, I think Chris Christopherson mm. or Barbara Streisand. How do they compare? Uh, I take or leave the Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson one, but I, yeah, the, the new one actually with Bradley Cooper, I think it's almost as tragic. It has the same kind of tragic kind of element that um, the original Star is Born, but there's something about the... Um, Oh, the the openness of Judy Garland's performance. I didn't kind of like the the turn they took with Lady Gaga's role in that. They kind of made her a little bit unlikable at times, you know, as her star rose, if you like. Um, and I suppose that was because they wanted you to kind of empathise with the Bradley Cooper character. Whereas I just think the balance in the original, you care about both of them so deeply um, and you don't judge either of them. It's you, you kind of, as a viewer, are kind of landed right in between the the two of them in that relationship and torn on who you want to kind of see succeed, if you like. You, you're rooting for them. Okay, let's go to television. And Sharon, I have to say, many people before you, and I expect many people in this slot will pick The Sopranos. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is one of the greatest yeah. TV shows ever made. For you, what got you into it and kept you with it? Um, I just, the roles of Tony and Carmela, they were the ones that for me had just the most interesting chemistry journey, especially Carmela. I just think the arc that she had throughout the series, how she became more knowing um, of the workings of the business of the Sopranos and her kind of struggling to make peace with you know, how she was having this lavish lifestyle and also trying to raise kids that battle as they grew older and became more and more aware. Just the tension between them was, uh, yeah, it was something I don't think you see that well written or well acted very often. They just kind of, yeah, originated the power couple, didn't they? The clip that we have is one we've actually used before. We have a problem, though, with The Sopranos, trying to find something which isn't completely (laughs) overtaken by the F word and various others for use on radio is difficult. There's only one use of the F word in this, by a child, as it happens. Uh, This is from the first season when Tony and his family take refuge in Vesuvio's after being caught in a storm. And he tells his children to remember the little moments, a sentiment later echoed by his daughter in the show's last episode. God, Marty, you saved our friggin' lives here. It's beautiful, Artie. Thank you. Uh, Enjoy. Ah, fuck. Hey, 
You said frig. Oh, wait a minute. I'd like to propose a toast to my family. Someday soon, you're gonna have families of your own. And if you're lucky, you remember the little moments like this. That were good. Cheers. The drama mm. of The Sopranos. Even hearing his voice, what a loss. James Gandolfini, wow. Okay, what have you got for us when it comes to books or authors? So I'm a big kind of biography, autobiography fan. So I was kind of, when I saw that question, I went, oh, I could list off so many amazing ones that I've read. But for a book that's fiction that I use as pure escapism, I actually went with Catherine Nicolai and her wonderful book, Nothing Much Happens. And the whole point of that book is to kind of, I suppose, reset your brain. And it's that kind of focus on mindfulness, but without feeling like you're doing any work, which is why I love it, because I'm not a good meditator. I've tried, but to try and find that kind of stillness and that peace and that kind of soothing, just relaxation. This book for me just was like changed my world. She has... First of all, she's done something that's so clever. And when you read the introduction to the book, she says, you know, as kids, we all fall asleep or we all relax at nighttime to these fairy stories. And it doesn't matter how often we hear them. There's something really lovely in the familiarity of them that allows you to relax because you know how they're going to end. And so the whole idea of nothing much happening is in each chapter, the character um, just has a normal day. But she speaks about such lovely things and uses like just such comforting language um, about, you know, going to the vegetable patch or going down the town and having a cup of coffee or making a bowl of stew. Like simple, simple things where if you do happen to not off or fall asleep, it doesn't matter because you didn't miss anything because nothing much really happened. But it's so, her voice and the pace that she reads that as well, I think she's a genius. And for me, it is like really putting on like a lovely woolly jumper. Well, we actually have a little bit from the audiobook by Catherine Nicolai, which she narrates herself. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an excerpt from a story called Keepsake. It had started as a hunt for a particular pair of socks. They were thick and warm, and I felt pretty sure that they were dark grey, but I hadn't seen them in a while. I went through my dresser drawers then searched the basket of lone socks on the shelf in the laundry room, but they weren't there either. That led me to the hall closet, and as soon as I opened the door, I fell under the spell of curiosity. Has this happened to you? You go up to the attic to get the extra leaf for the table, and somewhere along the way, a box catches your eye. And before you know it, you're sitting on the floor, 
with old school papers in your hands and a fan of grainy photographs spread out around you. Sometimes you get caught and all you can do is shrug your shoulders and hold up the program to a play you'd seen 20 years before and say, do you remember this? Nothing Much Happens by Catherine Nicolai. To finish, Sharon, give us a buried treasure, a sort of a cultural item that you'd recommend to anyone that we haven't covered. Well, we sort of covered it though, haven't we, earlier? We kind of did, but um, yeah, I should be getting like a commission on Fleetwood Mac because I'm doing nothing but promoting them. <laughs> but really, they are, um, my, my cultural hidden treasure is probably Lindsay Buckingham as a solo artist okay, um, and as a guitar player. And I just think anybody who has a, a passion for guitar playing or an interest in it, if you can try and find footage and just throw your eye over him playing some of his solo songs, it's mesmerising. It's just incredible. He's, uh, I think he, obviously he's world renowned, but he is one of the most underrated guitarists out there. Let's hear a little bit of I Don't Mind from his 2021 solo album. Lindsay Buckingham to finish out for us in the Culture Club with Sharon Sexton who starts this evening on stage in the Borgoss Energy Theatre in Bat Out of Hell the Musical which runs until Saturday the 10th of September. Sharon Sexton, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.